All right. Well, I already said this, but I'll say it again. Um, always an honor and a privilege to be here with you. Um, but to have the opportunity to open up God's word. Today, uh, we are back in chapter 8 of John's Gospel, and we're actually finally finishing the chapter. Um, now, <clears throat> I've said this before, but the book of John, if you've been with us, uh, the book of John is much like a spiral staircase, in that John has this pattern of taking us around and around, um, hitting some of these same themes time and time again. But each time he comes back to a theme, what we see is that he is developing these themes. He's taking them higher. He's enlightening us more to who Jesus is. And that's certainly the case with the text before us today. Uh, now, as we finish up this section, I want to remind us that we are, we're still in the Feast of Tabernacles. We've been here for a while uh, but we're still there in this Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles. And if you recall, back at the beginning of all of this, when all of this started, back in chapter 7, verse 1, we're told this, that the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill Jesus. And now here, we come to the end of chapter 8, and we learn that the Jews are now attempting to kill Jesus. Okay? Now, last week, we saw that Jesus was in this conversation with the Jews, and he's talking about what it means to be a true disciple. He was telling them uh, where true freedom is found. And if you remember, uh, the Jews didn't understand him. They didn't understand freedom. And so Jesus tells them very harshly, right? It was pretty intense last week. I think we can all admit that. But he tells them, uh, you are not sons of God. You, you say you believe in me. You say that you're following me. But you're not sons of God, you are sons of your father, the devil, he says. Well, now, in today's passage, we actually enter right back into this tense conversation. And what we're going to see is that the intensity only continues. The Jews are after Jesus now. They cannot accept him. They cannot accept his words. And why? Well, we've seen this. We've learned this throughout John. That light dispels darkness. That darkness always runs from light. Darkness hates the light. And Jesus has come to the world as the light of the world. His words are truth. His words give life. Throughout John's gospel, the light of who Jesus is just keeps getting brighter and brighter, which only makes the darkness around him grow deeper and deeper. And we're going to see that clearly today. And let me just say this as well, before we jump into our text, while we see here, and we're going to learn here, uh, that people are blinded to the truth, while we are going to continue to see people walk in darkness, we know the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come to give us sight, that he has come to call people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So that being said, here's where we're headed today. We're gonna to see once again that Jesus is the preeminent, pre-existent son of God. And as such, he promises eternal life to all who follow him. Jesus is preeminent 
Meaning, really simple, that he is better. He is greater than Abraham or anyone else for that matter. And we're also going to see that Jesus is preexistent. Again, simple, meaning he was before all things, that he is God. And as the preeminent, preexistent one, he promises eternal life to all who follow him. So let's get into our text now. I first want us to consider, there's going to be three Ps today. Three Ps, we'll start with the promise. The promise of Jesus, this is verse 48. The promise of Jesus, starting there. This is what happens. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So again, Jesus has just said to these Jews, right prior to this, he said, you are all slaves to your sin. You think you're sons, you're not, you're slaves. He says, you do not have eternal life. You don't hear the words of God. And the reason for that, he tells them, is because you don't belong to God. And now we see here in verse 48, their response to Jesus's claims. And they are actually now, they're insulting him. And they're doing that first, we see by calling him a Samaritan. By the way, have you ever noticed, this is in our own lives actually, have you ever noticed that when a person has lost an argument or they realize they can't argue someone, they just move to attacking the person instead of talking about the problem? That's exactly what we're seeing here. They know at this point, I think deep down, they cannot win this conversation with Jesus. And so they move to attacking who Jesus is. And they say, you're a Samaritan. Now, uh, we talked about this back in chapter four. You'd have to go back to that sermon with the woman at the well. But I cannot overstate how much, how much the Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans were considered outcasts. They, in society, they were considered outsiders. Jewish people wouldn't even touch them, could not get near them. In fact, they wouldn't even step foot on their land. They wouldn't even go into Samaria at, at all. It was that bad. And so they start with that insult. You're a Samaritan. In other words, you're dirty. You're unclean. You're an outcast. You're not of us. And then they add to that, it gets worse, not only are you a Samaritan, but you have a demon, which, by the way, isn't the first time Jesus has heard this, right? Jesus has been, has been told before by the religious leaders that he is demon-possessed. Because let's remember, once again, darkness hates the light. And so Jesus answers this. He says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. So we actually notice that Jesus here, he makes this decision to ignore the whole Samaritan part altogether. And by the way, this is typical of Jesus. It's a pattern in his conversation and dialogue. We don't always see Jesus responding to everything said about him. We don't always see Jesus defending himself. But what we do now hear, see him do here is quickly reject the demon piece in all this. And he does that by saying, all I do, here's what you're saying about me, but let me tell you who I am, what I do. All I do, he says, is please the Father. Listen, the world, we know this, our world still says horrible things about Jesus. 
horrific things about Christians and Christianity. And what do we do? What should be our response? Well, we don't here see Jesus really getting in the mud, if you will, and trading insults back and forth. No, he, he keeps his attention on the Father. And that should be our response too. This should be our response as well. Our commitment is solely to be about the Father's business. Our responsibility is to glorify him, to please him. We know, we should know, that he knows us. And that's what ultimately matters. It doesn't matter what people say about you. Jesus shows us that here. And then he continues. Yeah, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. What's interesting to me about these words from Jesus is that we know, of course, uh, for those of us who know Jesus, who are following Jesus, we know that Jesus actually is worthy of glory. He's worthy of honor. He's worthy of praise. In fact, later in John's gospel, we'll see in John 17, actually, it says there that the Father glorifies the Son. But here, but here we see that Jesus deflects glory, actually, and pushes it back on to the Father. And you know, there is another really good lesson for how we can or we should respond if we are attacked or, or mocked or ridiculed for our faith. Again, Jesus says, I live for my Father's glory, and ultimately, he is the judge. In other words, he's really telling them, I don't really care what you say about me. It doesn't matter. Call me a Samaritan. Say I'm demon-possessed. Why? Because it doesn't matter. Because why? The Father will have the last word about me. These religious leaders thought they were the judge. They believed they were the gatekeepers of Judaism, of the faith. But Jesus corrects them. No, you're not, he says. That's the Father. He's the gatekeeper. He's the judge. And so he's saying to them, you do not determine who I am. The Father does. And you know, when you think about it, I was thinking about this this week, there is so much freedom, there's great freedom in life when you can live like Jesus does here. When you're not overly concerned with what people think, especially what they think about you. When you can just live for the Father's glory alone and realize that he has the final word. That's a really hard thing to do. Even for me, I was thinking like, oh, I should, how am I being an example of this? But you know, it wouldn't be always true that I'm not affected by what people think of me or what people say about me or my reputation. But then I was thinking, man, if I just was up here and it was 100% all the time about the Father and his glory alone, like how would I be different? I think we should ask ourselves that question, right? Listen, the Jewish people were in fact under the judgment of God. Jesus has told them that reality. He said that you think you're free. You're living your lives, actually, as if you're free, but you're not. Again, he says you're in bondage. You're enslaved to your sin. But they do not see that. They miss it. They they don't believe it. And more than that, again, they thought they were the judges. They thought that they could assess rightfully what is truth apart from Jesus. And once again, I think this highlights another important point as we think about our culture today, right? See, there's so many, talked about this a little bit last week as well, but so many in our world who say that they love God, say that they believe in God, but at the same time, they actually reject Jesus. 
oh yeah, I believe in God, I believe there's a God, but they don't follow Jesus, right? You know people like this. But listen, that never works. It doesn't work. Rejecting the Son, Jesus Christ, is actually rebellion against God. After all, it was God the Father who made the decision to send the Son, right? But our world is so filled with all this God talk, vague belief talk. It's like people almost believe in belief or they want to believe in belief, right? Have you ever heard someone, uh, when they find themselves in trouble, maybe they're going through a difficult season or they're down or low, they don't ask for prayer, but they say something like this, hey, hey man, can you just send some good vibes my way? Send me some good vibes. Send it over here. What in the world is that supposed to mean? Right? First of all, how can I even send a vibe? <laughs> right? <laughs> but look, the reality is, if you don't have Jesus, you have no other choice. You have to fill your life with something else. And so that's what people do. They ask for good vibes their way. What we are seeing in John's gospel over and over again is that everything hinges on what you and I decide to do with Jesus. Everything. It's all centered on him. Well, then Jesus makes this great promise in verse 51. Listen carefully now to these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He says, for real, for real, <laughs> that wasn't meant to be a joke, but I'll go with it. I'll pretend it was. For real, for real, I assure you, I assure you, if you keep my words, you will not see death. That's a remarkable promise, isn't it? A remarkable promise. And once again, we're actually seeing now the subject of death discussed in John. John likes this topic. If you remember back a few weeks ago, Jesus said, to those who are listening to him, he said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So this topic is important to Jesus, death. And certainly, the topic of death is a relevant subject for us. I mean, I couldn't come up with, I mean, there's so many examples I could have come up with this week because this subject of death just pops up and is reflected upon over and over and over again in our culture, isn't it? Like, think about how many movies even just reflect on the subject of death. It actually, it doesn't even matter the genre. Dramas, horror, right? Comedy, right? Even, even Disney addresses death, right? Have you seen Up, right? The first 10 minutes, devastating, right? Or how many of you have seen Forrest Gump? Some of you don't even know what Forrest Gump is. You're too young. And that makes me feel old. How many of you have ever seen Forrest Gump? It's been years and years and years, by the way, since I've seen that movie. And so I will say this, I should say this, I'm not actually sure if as a pastor I'm allowed to recommend it, all right? So on your own volition or will, you know, go watch that. But it wasn't FEC approved. We haven't, we haven't put our stamp on that movie, all right? I remember it being a good movie. Um, but it's this movie, if you haven't seen it, you don't remember the story, it's this movie about this man with a simple mind who is contemplating all the complexities of life. Things like war, things like friendship, and politics, and love. And at the end of the movie, 
This is a spoiler alert. The girl that he has always loved since he was a child, Jenny is her name, Jenny dies. And as he, are, as he is at her grave, um, he says this in that simple southern accent. He says, Mama always said dying was a part of life. I sure wish it wasn't. You see, for most people, there is nothing more mysterious than death. And there is nothing that we wish were not part of life more than death. We fear death. We hate death. And of course, the reality is that we all die, which is why we all need these words from Jesus here. Listen, the scriptures are clear that the wages of sin is death. It's the consequences of our sin, death. Because of sin, death exists in our world. It's something that we all have to contemplate. We all have to confront. Whether you're dealing with, maybe you're here and you're dealing with aging parents, maybe you're here and you're, you're dealing with your own health struggles, or maybe you're here, you're, you find yourself getting older or believe you're getting older and you're anticipating that, thinking about that, death is a reality. Right? That's the bad news. But the good news is there is a person who can fix it. Through Jesus, the curse of death is broken. There is a way out. He says here, there is a way for you and I to never see death. I mean, seriously, think about that. There's a way for you here today to never see death. What would people give today if you could tell them they would never see death? Imagine this, right? They'd do anything for that, wouldn't they? You need to skydive without a parachute to never see death. Great, let's go. First in line, right? You need to hike Mount Everest without a jacket. Sure, why not, right? You want to not taste death, right? You need to eat Taco Bell every day of your life. For some of you, that's worse than death, right? <laughs> but you get the point, right? Listen, there is nothing we can do to escape death. Nothing. But there is something, listen, there's nothing we can do to escape death, but there is something that God has done. And by faith in Jesus, if you keep his word, Jesus says you don't have to see death. And of course, we're talking about eternal death here. We will die physically, but the promise is life beyond the grave. What a promise. Well, once again, to that, the Jews respond, and unfortunately for them, we see more of the same. This is verse 52 now. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Maybe I should have said that with more emphasis. There's an exclamation point there. Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. I think it should be said that we are seeing that the Jews recognize here. They understand that Jesus is setting himself apart from every other spiritual leader in Judaism, including Abraham. They understand what he's doing. And to that, they're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? How can you actually say what you're saying? Even Abraham died, they say. Who do you think you are saying that people can potentially not taste death? And of course, while they recognize that Jesus is setting himself apart, they also misunderstand him once again. 
We keep seeing that over and over and over again, don't we? They listen to Jesus, but they do not hear Jesus. Because what does Jesus mean when he says, you will never see death? The Jews are still thinking in the physical, but Jesus is speaking about the spiritual. As I mentioned before, we will still die, but Jesus is talking about eternal death and eternal life here. You see, for the Christian, physical death is just the vehicle by which we get moved into the presence of Jesus. I think that's an appropriate way to see death. It puts it in its perspective. Death is just the vehicle for those of you who are in Christ, those of us who are in Jesus today, who believe in him. Physical death is just the vehicle by which we get moved into the presence of Jesus. Here on earth, we walk by faith. But one day, our faith will end in sight. So let's put death once again in its proper place. Physical death provides us the opportunity to have sight, to see and to be with Jesus. Or you might think of it this way, if you truly know Jesus, if you know Jesus now, then someday you're gonna get an upgrade when you die. <laughs> it's like moving up into first class. <laughs> right? You will know him better at death. You will enjoy him more at death. This is such good news, isn't it? And what it ultimately means is that the worst thing in this life isn't dying. The worst thing in this life is dying without Jesus. That's infinitely worse. And I say this every time we talk about death. It doesn't mean that we don't grieve death. There's a reason we're having a memorial service next Sunday night. We grieve death. It doesn't mean we don't lament death. We do. It's right and it's good to do that. But we do not grieve death without hope if we're in Christ, amen. So this is a great promise from Jesus, is it not? If you keep my word, if you abide in it, you are truly his disciple and you will not taste death. We talked about this last week and we see it here again, that following Jesus is more than praying a prayer. It's more than attending a church service. The only way to eternal life is to know the word to hold fast to the word and to let it shape your life. This is the way to avoid death, life apart from God. Keep Jesus's word, it's the only way. So that's the promise. Now let's look briefly at the preeminence of Jesus, the preeminence of Jesus. I told you there's three Ps, there's the second one. Promise, second one, preeminence. And we see this in verses 53 to 56. The Jewish leaders again respond. The dialogue just keeps going back and forth, back and forth. They say to him, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets, he's saying, they all died. Who do you make yourself out to be? They want clarity. Now, of course, they are expecting a no. They say, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? They are expecting a no. Maybe a better way to say it, they want to hear a no. <laughs> But we know the answer is yes. Jesus is greater. And he is not just a prophet of God. He is the God of the prophets. And so Jesus responds to them. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. So Jesus' response to 
who do you make yourself out to be? Tell us, Jesus, is once again to turn or to return to the topic of glory, just as he's done before. We see he deflects glory once again to make this point. I know you guys think I'm nothing. Actually, I know you all think I'm trash. But my concern is with the Father. He reminds him again. My only concern in this life is with the one who actually defines me and the one who gives me purpose. Again, we all need to hear that, I think. Then verse 55, Jesus continues, but you have not known him. I know him. That's the Father. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar. Here's the dig. Like you. (laughs) But I do know him and I keep his word. I abide in his word. Jesus doesn't pull any punches, does he? (laughs) He doesn't mess around. He's so bold. I love that about Jesus. He's loving, yes, but when it's necessary, oh my goodness, he is bold. Cuts right to the heart. He says, I know God the Father, you don't. How do I know that, he says? I'll remind you, same as he did last week. He says, you do not follow the word, and I do. And we've talked about this before. Actually, this came up in John chapter 7. What is the main problem with these people who are around Jesus, who've been following around the masses? What is their main problem? Well, we know it's not an intellectual problem. Not ultimately. They do have their facts wrong, but it's not primarily an intellectual problem. It's a heart problem. It's a spiritual problem. They are blinded by their own self-centeredness. They are deaf because they are only concerned with their own glory, their own comfort, their own security. Verse 56, your father Abraham, Jesus says, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. I love this verse. We now see, you've seen the, the ascent of light. We're supposed to feel this. The light is getting brighter and brighter and brighter. They want to talk about Abraham. They want to go there. It's a mistake. but they want to go there. They keep bringing up Father Abraham, and so Jesus finally goes there, and this is what he says. He says, you keep talking about Abraham, but you're not even being faithful to him because you see, Abraham himself rejoiced to see me. He rejoiced to see my day. That is, he rejoiced. Abraham rejoiced. He praised God at the reality that the Messiah, the Savior, was coming. Now, we also have to see here that Jesus doesn't refer to specifics. Like, he's done this in the past, but he doesn't do this here. He doesn't bring up a specific event or a specific instance in Abraham's life to make his case. And the reason for that is because I believe intentionally he's being more general. He's not being specific. He's talking about Abraham's holistic view of life and of God. That Abraham, in other words, his whole life was about looking ahead. That there were many instances, many moments in Abraham's life where he was glad. Where he rejoiced at the coming of the Messiah. I mean, right from the beginning, when God calls Abraham out, leave your family, leave everything behind, go to a land that I'll show you and I'm going to make a covenant with you. From that point to the miraculous birth of his son Isaac, to God providing a lamb so that Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his one and only son. 
Right? There were so many opportunities for Abraham to look forward and to rejoice in the coming Savior. And by the way, by the way, the Jewish people know that. The Jewish leaders know that. They taught that. They believed Abraham was looking forward as well. But what outraged them, what made them furious, is the fact that Jesus was claiming to be the one that Abraham was looking forward to. Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah. He was claiming to be the one that Abraham expected and rejoiced in. Jesus says, Abraham, and by saying Abraham, he's saying, essentially, he's saying, all of your ancestors looked forward to the day of the Lord. They were all anticipating the day of my arrival. All of them. And now that day has come. Why? Because I'm here right before you. Well, that takes us to the final piece of this text. And in it, we see the pre-existence of Jesus. We've explored the promise. You will not taste death. We've looked at his preeminence. He's greater than everything. All things, all people. And now we look at his pre-existence. Jesus has already said a lot. And what he has said uh, in this section of John 8 is so heavy, so rich, so convicting. It's revealed so much of who he is and what he's about, what he came to do. But now we've reached the pinnacle. The light now is going to shine the brightest. It doesn't get any bigger than these words coming in John 8. Follow this with me. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. See how they always just, they're just focusing on the physical. <laughs> you are not yet 50 years old. Jesus is probably more around 30, 33, okay? Right in between there. And you have seen Abraham, they say. As I was reading and studying these verses this week, um, this right here in particular just drove me crazy. It drove me, drove me crazy. I was just trying to wrap my head around. How could they say this? These are supposed to be the religious elite. Right? These are the teachers of the law. These are the ones that are like delivering the message of hope and love and, and peace and joy to the people. They know the Bible. They, they've memorized it backwards and forwards. And yet, every time they listen to Jesus speak, they can only hear him on a human level. They continue to miss it. They bring up his age. <laughs> and so Jesus now holds nothing back. Nothing. And this is the climatic, climatic point of John 8. Jesus said to them, Truly, true, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. If you weren't with us when we started John, this gospel, all the way back in chapter one, months and months ago, John began his gospel by talking about the preexistence of Jesus. He starts everything there, actually. He says, in the beginning was the word. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And now we've come to John 8, and Jesus himself now elaborates on this truth in such a greater way. And notice here that Jesus doesn't say, 
before, notice the language. He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was, which is true. Jesus was before Abraham and everyone else. Instead, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And so, this is actually saying more than pre-existence, which would have been enough. If this was just about his pre-existence, that's enough. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus here, once again, purposefully takes on himself the divine name of God. Before Abraham was, pause, sit, I am. The great I am. This is the name that God revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter three. You remember, we've talked about it a couple times already. I'll remind you. Moses is walking around. He's left home, right? Left Egypt. He's walking around. He sees this bush burning that still has green leaves and berries on it, but it's on fire. It's not withering away, and it's a miracle. This burning bush. And at that moment, God, Moses approaches the bush, and at that moment, God literally calls out to Moses, speaks to him, and says this, you need to go back to Egypt, back to Pharaoh, and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. He needs to free my people. Everyone he has enslaved, he needs to let them go. And what does Moses say to that? He says, who are you? (laughs) What's your name? Right, if he lived in Korea, do you have a name card? Right. Who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them that I am who I am sent you. Tell them that absolute reality, this is what he's saying, absolute reality, the self-sufficient one, the one who needs no food, no sleep, no air. You tell them that I am sent you. And so Moses obeys. He goes on mission. Well, now Jesus is before all these people. Remember, there would have been thousands at this feast, this crowd at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the final day of the feast And to them, he proclaims, before Abraham was, I am powerful. You know, around 17 times in John's gospel, Jesus uses this verbiage, I am. But this is probably the clearest of them all. So to your unbelieving friend, to your unbelieving family member, maybe you're here today listening, you're not a follower of Jesus, or maybe you're here and you're, to your coworker, you hear them say, you hear anyone say once again, they, they say, Jesus never claimed to be God. You take them right here. Take them to the end of John 8. Because it cannot be clearer. John has been so concerned that we understand the purpose of Jesus. That's why he wrote John in the first place. He wants us to know who Jesus is and to believe in him so that we might have life in his name. And And along John's way, we've been learning bit by bit bit who Jesus is, haven't we? Piece by piece, the person of Jesus Christ has been unveiled to us like an onion, right? Peeling back layer by layer, right? This book is so incredible. But now, John doesn't just give us a bit. This is not just a piece. This is like the whole cake. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And I want us to notice here as well, there is no explanation that follows. There is no exposition of this. If Jesus was holding a microphone at the moment, this is where he dropped the mic. This is it. Now, there isn't an explanation. There's no exposition from Jesus. But we know exactly what Jesus was saying here. And the Jews knew that as well. Because we see their reaction to it. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Not a very casual response to Jesus' words, huh? At this point, they're like, they're not like whatever Jesus, like you're out of your mind, you're crazy, like whoever wants to follow you is just out of it, you know, and they just walk away and let him be. No, 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 that's not the response anymore. They say collectively and together, we need to stone this man. That's the only proper response. We need to kill him. Why? Because stoning is the punishment for blasphemy. You can read this. I believe it's not in my notes, so you have to test me here. I believe it's Leviticus chapter 24. Okay? You blaspheme God, his name, you claim to be God, the automatic response is picking up stones, throw them to your death. By the way, just so we're clear, it's not in my notes here about stoning, because I know this is always like this picture of what is stoning, and we have this imagery of like people picking up like pebbles and rocks and just throwing them at people until they die. That's not actually the case. What would happen is that's how it started. Stoning literally in the New Testament means, and Old Testament as well, they would throw rocks until the person would like fall over and be like hindered or collapsed. Then what they would do is they would take the body, this is the process, take the body and put it at the bottom of a cliff. Then they would take a massive, large stone, like ones that would go above a grave, and they would roll it over the cliff and crush the person. Right? So when Paul says, I've been stoned twice, this is what he's saying. <laughs> Not just hit with stones, like massive rocks have been rolled on top of me. Right? This is what they're trying to do to Jesus. They want him dead, dead. It's severe punishment. Punishment that blaspheming God deserves. This man is claiming to be God. Jesus is trying to lead other people to believe and to follow him as the Savior, as the Lord, as the King, as God. So they say, we need to stone him. But what happens? Well, we see here that they actually can't kill him. John tells us here in verse 56 that Jesus slips through their fingertips, if you will, that that he hid himself and went out of the temple. They've all been in the temple for a week celebrating. Now Jesus moves his way out of the temple. And let me be very clear on this. The English, you read that and you could, you know, what you make think is like Jesus got away and he escaped, like Mission Impossible, right? Like he's really slick with his ninja skills, right? And got out from the Pharisees. No, right? That's not what's happening here. That's not even John's point at all. John is making a theological point here. This is a theological point, which is simply this. It wasn't Jesus' time to die. You see, there was a death planned for Jesus, and it'll happen six months after this event. But stoning was not part of that plan. 
There was another kind of death that was planned for Jesus, but he is and was sovereign over that plan, over that death. His death would be a sacrificial, atoning death, not the death of a martyr or a blasphemer. You see, Jesus' death would solve the problem of death by removing the source of death, namely sin. He would be the sin-bearing substitute. He would defeat death, not by escaping death, but by enduring death. And he will render that death utterly useless and powerful, powerless, excuse me, by rising from the dead, never to die again. I said die like eight times there, so I'll say it again so you get it. Jesus' death would be a sacrificial atoning death. Jesus' death would solve the problem of death by removing the source of death, namely sin, by himself being the sin-bearing substitute. He would defeat death, not by escaping death, but by enduring death. And he will render that death as utterly powerless by rising from the dead, never to die again. You see, Abraham, Father Abraham, Abraham did not have to put his son to death. When he climbs the mountain with his son, being told by God to go sacrifice your son, Abraham ascends that mountain with his son Isaac, Abraham prepares the altar, gets all the wood out, lays his son Isaac on that altar, and as he raises the knife to kill his own son for the Lord, he looks, and in a bush, a thorn bush, there's a lamb. There. God had provided a sacrifice in the place of his son. God did that for Abraham. But Paul reminds us, the apostle Paul reminds us, that he... God the Father did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Father Abraham did not have to give up his son, but God the Father did. Jesus would die a death, and he would die a death we deserve to die in order that you and I may not see or taste death. What a savior. There is so much depth and heavy, heavy theology here. So much depth in our text this morning. But I'll simplify it by saying this once again. Jesus is the preeminent and preexistent son of God. He is the better, all ever existing son of God. And as that One, he promises eternal life to all who follow him. To all who keep his word, they will not taste death. This is the gospel. The promise has been made. And by God's grace, that promise today is still available. So how are you responding to that great claim? How are you responding to the great I am today? Let me plead with you. Don't revolt against Jesus but rather rejoice in Jesus. Don't throw stones at Jesus, but bow down in glad submission to him. Before Abraham was, I am. 
Let me pray for you.